going click. So she was getting her class ready to go outside, and there was a little boy who was having trouble getting his boots on. And so she bent down, and it was a struggle, but she finally got the boots on. And the little boy looked down after the teacher got the boots on. He said, oh, teacher, they're on the wrong feet. Sure enough, they were on the wrong feet. It took just as much trouble to get the boots off and to get them onto the correct feet. And finally, she got them onto the correct feet, and she was starting to break a sweat, and the little boy said, these aren't even my boots. <laughs> And she's thinking, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? So she pulls the boots off again with a great deal of effort. He said, these are my brother's boots. My mom made me wear them today. <laughs> so she gets the boots back on. She gets the boots back on, a lot of effort. And, uh, and she goes looking for the boy's gloves. Where are your gloves? He said, they're in the toes of my boots. <laughs> things, things always have a deeper meaning, a deeper picture. As a way of introduction this morning, I'd like for you to turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 4. The Gospel of John chapter 4. That's not where we're going to stay. We're eventually going to go over to Matthew's Gospel chapter 9. But we'll begin in John's Gospel chapter 4. John's Gospel chapter 4. And I want you to notice in John's Gospel chapter 4 an interesting statement. John's Gospel chapter 4. Before we get to that statement, Jesus is in Galilee. He's going to go, excuse me, Jesus is in Judea. He's going to go north from Judea up into Galilee. Judea and Galilee are connected together by an, by an 80 to 90 mile stretch of river called the Jordan River. And so Jesus is going to go north from Judea up into Galilee. Most of the Jewish people, you will remember from what you've been taught, would go around the place that's in between Judea and Galilee. That's a place called Samaria. And the devout Jewish person would not go through Samaria. The Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. The Jews looked down on the Samaritans, and the Samaritans looked down on the Jews for their bigotry. And so normally you would go around Samaria. You would simply account that in your trip and in your travels. But the Bible says that Jesus must needs go through Samaria. Look there in verse 4. And he must needs go through Samaria. John 4, 4. He must needs go through Samaria. Because in Samaria, there was a town that Jesus needed to get to, a place called Sychar. And in Samaria and in a place called Sychar, there was a well, a piece of property that was settled by Jacob centuries ago. And in that property and in that city called Sychar in a place called Samaria, there was a well that was dug by, by, Jacob, by Jacob's family centuries ago. And at that well, there was an appointment to be made. And, and while the other person who was going to be at that place when Jesus was there, they didn't know it was an appointment that was planned in eternity, but there was going to be an appointment there. Jesus had to go through Samaria because he had to get to Sychar. And he had to get to Sychar because he had to get to a property settled by Jacob. And he had to get to that property because there was a well there. And at that well, there was a woman that was going to meet him about the sixth hour. She didn't know that there was an appointment coming, but Jesus knew. And all of this is so that some people could see some things, so that people could see some things. Like Jeremiah of old, mine eye affected my heart. And there were some people that needed to see some things. There was a woman of Samaria that needed to see Jesus. And there were some people in Samaria that this woman would go see who needed to see Jesus. But in addition to that, there was a third group of people that needed to see something, and that was the disciples. Look here down here as we go through John chapter 4, beginning of verse 4 again. 
he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied in his journey, sat thus on the well. It was about the sixth hour. And there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, give me to drink. And I want you to notice immediately there's a tension. Uh, there's immediately a tension in the air. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Verse 9, then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, how is it that thou... Being a Jew, ask his drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria. For the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Boy, she goes right to that racial tension, right to that bigotry. She says, how is it that you, you're a man, asks me a woman, highly unusual, and not only a woman, but a woman of Samaria. You are a Jew. I am a Samaritan. How is it that you ask me? And she says, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And what she's saying is, you have no use for us. You Jewish people have no use for us until you need something from us. Amen. Then all of a sudden now, because you need something, you approach me. Now because you need something, now because you need something, you speak to me. I wonder if there's a lost world around us that thinks the same thing. You Christians sometimes come across as so arrogant and, and so high and holy. You, you don't have any need for us until you need something. You don't have any dealings with us until you need something from us. And that's what she says. Well, you remember the text here. Jesus gives her a great offer. In verse 10, Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that speaketh to thee, or who it is that saith unto thee, give me to drink. Thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Now, you know the conversation begins there. And boy, the conversation progresses beautifully. Before it's gone, Jesus will, will very definitely and very openly say that he is the Messiah. Amen. I that speaketh to thee am he. And by the time the conversation is done, she has some people in her mind who need to know this Jesus. And as soon as the conversation is done, she goes back into Samaria. The disciples are out getting food. They're now, they now come back to Jesus. And they say to Jesus, uh, would you like something to eat? In so many words. He says, no, I have meat that you know not of. In other words, he says, I'm not hungry. I'm already full. I've already eaten. And the disciples think to themselves, who brought him food? Does he have food we don't know of? And Jesus said, my, my meat, my meal, the thing that I am satiated with, the thing that nourishes me. He says, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. Now, remember I said there was a woman that needed to see Jesus. And there were some people, some men that she knew that needed to see Jesus. But there's another sight that needs to be, be seen here. Look here at John chapter 4 as it continues on. Look all the way down to verse 35. Jesus speaks, he says, say not ye there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. That word look speaks of looking at something to consider it. It speaks of looking at something to behold it, to drink it in. He says, men, the reason why we came to Samaria and the reason why we came to Sychar and the reason why we came to this property settled by Jacob and the reason why we came to this well dug by his family is because, men, you need to see something. Look upon the fields. They are, they are white, all ready to harvest. You need to see the harvest field. Mine eye affected my sight, old Jeremiah said. 
And Jesus said to his men, you need to see the fields. Look at it. Consider it. Don't just look at it in a, in a surface way. Consider it. And that's what I want us to do this morning. And to do that, look with me over to the Gospel of Matthew. Our text this morning is Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. And in Matthew chapter 9, we're going to begin at verse 35. Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 35. And Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35, the Bible says, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Now we're going to stop there for just a moment. We'll get into the next verse in just a moment. But the Bible is going to reveal to us what Jesus sees when he sees people. And I tell you, you and I need to have the heart of the Savior. We need to see the same thing when we see people. And this will help us to have compassion. How do we look on the world around us? How do we look at people? Are people a hassle? Are people a bother? Sometimes somebody will say in ministry, boy, the ministry would be great if it wasn't for people. But the ministry is people. All that we would look at people the way Jesus looks at people. Matthew chapter 9, and looking here at verse 36, notice what the Bible says. But when he saw the multitudes, this is the, these are the eyes of the one who sees things completely. These are, these are the eyes of the one who sees things and doesn't need an explanation. These are the eyes of one who sees things thoroughly. He lacks no information regarding what he sees. And the Bible says here that when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. Did you notice the Spirit of God didn't use the word empathy? Why, the word empathy talks about feeling along with somebody. Did you notice the Spirit of God didn't use the word sympathy? Sympathy means to understand what somebody is going through. So empathy is feeling what they're going through. Sympathy means to understand what they're going through. But the Spirit of God used the word compassion here because compassion sees and feels and wants to relieve. The, the, the word compassion means to see what somebody is going through, to understand what they're going through, and to have the desire to relieve the suffering that they're going through. And this one who sees this and is moved with compassion not only sees thoroughly, not only feels what people feel, not only understands what people feels, feel, not only wants to relieve the suffering, but this one has the capacity to relieve the suffering. This one has the capacity to change the person's life, to set the person free, to move them from darkness to light and from death to life. And so the Bible says, but what did he see? What did he see? The Bible says here in verse 36, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. There are three things Jesus saw in the people that he saw. And I tell you, there are all sorts of things that cover this up. Go back to the days when you did not know the Savior. Go back to the days when you did not know Christ. Why, we knew what it was to put on a good face. We knew what it was to put on a good front. But in our private moments, there was agony. In our private moments, there was struggle. In our private moments, there was, there was wonder. In our private moments, there was aimlessness. We were just as these folks were here. As Jesus saw folks, he saw them as sheep. As sheep, as, and here, notice what it says here. The Bible says that they fainted. You know what it is to faint? It's to be without strength. 
It's to use every ounce of energy and have nothing left over. It is to be spent. That's what that idea of fainting is. These people that Jesus saw who were unconverted, these people who did not know the Lord, were expending every ounce of energy in life, and they were spent. So they were people who were spent. And notice not only were they spent, the Bible says here that they were scattered. That idea also carries the idea in other places in the, in the New Testament of the idea of being harassed, not helped. Of being harassed and not helped. I'm so thankful that across the street from our place in Huntington Beach, California, when I was growing up, there was a family there that loved us like Jesus loves people. Amen. There was a family there, a mom and a, a son that just loved the Lord. And I'm so thankful that they didn't look down on us, they, but they understood our condition. And they didn't push us away, but instead made inroads into our lives. And God used that so the gospel could make inroads into our hearts. I'm so thankful for their testimony. So thankful for their faithfulness because we were spent. We were scattered. And that wherever we would go to religiously for help, wherever we would go to, and my mom was certain, wherever we would, whatever we would dive into always left us more harassed, so to speak. It, it didn't draw us any closer to God. Many times it just confused us more. And it seemed like the more we did, the more distant we felt from God. And so these were people who were spent. Spent. Say that word with me. Spent. They were scattered. Say that with me. Scattered. Two things, two traits. Spent and scattered. Say that with me. Spent and scattered. And the people around us are the same way. Some of them just kind of give up in the search for trying to be right with God. Some of them just give up in the, in the idea that, that they can be right with God. And then we find, uh, finally here, the Bible says as sheep, having no shepherd, as sheep having no shepherd. These people whose spiritual leaders were supposed to be their guides were actually not their guides at all, but simply further added to their bondage, further added to their burden. These folks, though over them, God had appointed people that were supposed to be shepherds to feed them. What's the job of a shepherd? To feed and to protect. That's the job of a shepherd, to feed and to protect. In a local church, that's the job of a shepherd, to feed the sheep, but to feed the flock and to protect the flock. Then sheep don't always understand what a danger a wolf is. And sheep may not always understand that that, 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 that friendly-looking dog is actually a wolf that, that wants to destroy and wants to, wants to devour but a wise shepherd sees underneath the, 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 the facade and, and protects the sheep from wolves. You sometimes think the shepherd's just being narrow-minded. You think sometimes he's just uh, being arrogant. But the fact is he's got a job to Amen. feed the flock Amen. and to protect that flock. Amen. I'm thankful for the shepherd you have here. Amen. I'm thankful for the, the man of God that you have here in Pastor Amen. Nolan. Don't discount that and pray for him, pray for him. But these, the folks that Jesus saw, those who were supposed to be their shepherds were not feeding them at all, but were starving them. Those who were to be their shepherds, uh, the folks needed to be protected from the shepherds. The sheep were scattered. Spent, scattered, and shepherdless. Spent, scattered, and shepherdless. Say that with me. Spent, 
scattered, and shepherdless. Let's say it again. Spent, scattered, and shepherdless. And that's what Jesus saw. And I believe that if we got a hold of what Jesus saw, I believe if we got a hold of what he saw, it would change our approach to missions. If we saw people as, as, as Jesus sees them, as people who are spent, fainting, people who are scattered, who are harassed, people who are shepherdless, I think that we would change how we think about missions. I remember reading a book called uh, um, To the Golden Shore. To the Golden Shore, the biography of Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson was so stirred about the souls that were spent, scattered, and shepherdless in Burma that he gave his life to going to the mission field. And, it, and during that day and age, there were a lot of harsh realities that were involved in the life of a missionary, as there are today, but it just seems like it was much harsher. And Adoniram Judson had fallen in love with a girl. Her name was Anne. And Adoniram Judson wrote a letter to Anne's father to get his permission to marry her. I want to read a portion of that letter. What stirs a man to write a letter like this? What stirs a father to give permission? It is a right, proper understanding of the souls of men. That people need Christ. That without Christ, they are spent, they're scattered, and they're shepherdless. Here's a letter Adoniram Judson wrote. And he says, um, I have now to ask whether you can consent. This is the letter to Anne's father. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see this world no more, to see her in this world no more. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Woe? Hey, today's dad would say, I don't, I'm not going to marry my daughter off to a guy like that. No way. It used to be considered, by the way, Ann's father said yes. It used to be that, that decades ago, the moms and dads who loved God counted it a great privilege when their children went into the ministry or when their children were called by God to the foreign mission field. But nowadays, we live in such a, a comfortable mindset. And not, we don't want to threaten by anything. That nowadays, when a church has a missions conference, sometimes moms and dads keep their teenagers away from the conference. They have other aspirations for their children in sports or in technology or in medicine or in law. And they're just afraid that God just might get a hold of their hearts and call them to the foreign mission field and that they would miss all those other opportunities. When was, what, what happened to the days when moms and dads were thrilled when God called their young people into the ministry? 
When they would pray, oh, dear God, if you need a missionary, Lord, come to our house and find one in our family. Lord, if you need a church planner in an area, Lord, come to my house. And do you know what it is? We've forgotten that people are spent. We have forgotten that they're scattered. We've forgotten that they're shepherdless because they're cleaned up. And because they're, 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 they have some sort of a, a reasonable demeanor, we think people are okay when they are miles apart from God and need the Savior. Amen. Our eye affects our heart. I remember reading of one-way missionaries. You may have heard of them. I remember reading of a missionary. His last name was Milne. A hundred years ago, a hundred years ago, uh, one-way missionaries. Excuse me, it was, it was about 150 years ago. 150 years ago, one-way missionaries. Here's what they would do. They would pack all of their belongings, not in suitcases and trunks, but in a coffin. And that's what they would take to the shore. And they would board the boat with a coffin because their plan was this. I'm going to the mission field and I'm going to serve God on the mission field till I die and bury me on the mission field. You talk about putting your hand to the plow and not looking back. Man, these were amazing people of courage. And one fellow by the name of Milne, God put it on his heart to go to Papua New Guinea, headhunter country. But he went to Papua New Guinea. He put everything he owned in, his, in a coffin, and he took that coffin with him. And though there had been missionaries that had gone before him who had lost their lives for the sake of Christ. But he went. And though the work was hard, Milne served in a particular village for 50 years. Amen. They buried him when he died in a coffin that he brought with him. And they put a sign there. They're, it's still there today. They put a sign at his gravesite that said this. When Milne came, there was no light. Amen. And when he left, there was no darkness. Amen. How does a guy do that? He gets a proper assessment of the soul of a man. How does a person have that kind of an energy, that kind of a vision, that kind of a direction, that kind of a drive? It's from a proper, a biblical assessment of where people are without Christ. And they are spent and scattered and shepherdless. Maybe tonight, or maybe today, in this place, you would sense God roaming in this room, looking for a missionary, looking for a church planter, looking for somebody that, that would even just be a missionary on your block, be a missionary where you'll work, be a missionary in your community, Amen. somebody, somebody that, that would join the ranks of those that go door to door. Amen. And maybe you'd sense Lord, I've not had a proper assessment of people around me. Lord, I want to see things as you see them. Lord, I, I want to get your heart on this matter. And maybe there'd be somebody who'd say, oh, Lord, wherever you lead me, I'll go. Wherever you direct me, I'll go. There are people that need the gospel. Lord, I'll go. I'll take the gospel there. You might even say, Lord, I don't know where, where it is that you'll take me, but I'll go. I'm just submitted to you. I'm surrendered to you. Maybe you sense that God wants to use you to take the gospel to another place, to a foreign land, or even here at home. We used to have a song that was sung years ago, years like 30 years ago, oftentimes in missions conferences. And, and I remember when I was an interim pastor in, in Orange County for about a year, I remember that oftentimes this song would be sung. And all oh, my heart would be stirred uh, before I would preach. And you remember these words if you've been around for a while. It's a prayer. It's a song that's actually a prayer. Lord, let me see this world, dear Lord, as though I were looking through your eyes. 
A world of men who don't want you, Lord, but a world for which you died. Let me kneel with you in the garden, blur my eyes with tears of agony, for if once I could see this world the way you see, I just know I'd serve you more faithfully. Let me see this world, dear Lord, through your eyes when men mock your holy name, when they beat you and spat upon you, Lord. Let me love them as you love them just the same. Let me stand high above my petty problems and grieve for men hell-bound eternally. For if once I could see this world the way you see, I just know, I just know I'd serve you more faithfully. That's my problem. I don't need a program. I don't need a seminar. I just need to see people like Jesus sees them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it tells us what Jesus saw in people. Lord, forgive me for the times when I forget that people are just a few heartbeats from eternity, a few breaths from forever. And on the outside, as our culture goes, many people seem like they just got it all together. But they have nothing together in preparation for eternity. When it comes to spiritual things, people are often spent, scattered, harassed, and shepherdless. You've given us the wonderful privilege and joy of knowing the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Stir our hearts, dear Lord. Help us to see people as you see them. Thank you for men and women of God who've gone before us, who with great passion served you faithfully through the decades, who they faced deprivations, they faced hardships, they buried loved ones on the mission field, and yet they still served you. Thank you that their testimony as part of the great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews 11 talks about, their testimony stirs us on. Their testimony pushes us on. Help us to see people as you see them. Our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, and it may be that in this room and under the, under the sound of our voice, there is somebody that does not yet know the chief shepherd, does not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you, are, you sense, I am in agony of soul. I am spent. I wander and do not find the truth. I am just so thirsty spiritually and find nothing to satisfy that, that thirst in any churches because the satisfaction is found in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. And perhaps this would be the day that you would put your trust in Christ. March chapter, or March, March the 6th, March the 6th, 2022. Maybe this would be the day you'd call on Christ to be your Savior. If we could be of help, get in touch with us. But if you're in the service today, you're in the right place. If you need Christ in a moment, we're going to stand in a moment. There'll be the pianist playing in a moment. There'll be some music. Our heads will be bowed. Our eyes will be closed. And you'll have the opportunity, if you so desire, to slip to the nearest aisle and come where somebody will take a Bible and show you how you could be saved, how you could know this shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died in your place, was buried and rose again. If you need the Savior today, I invite you to come. But this message has been to Christians. You've been very patient with your heads bowed and eyes closed, but I wonder if there's not somebody here today that would say, oh, 
By God's grace, I need to see people like Jesus sees them. My heart's gotten a little cold. By God's grace, I want to see people as Jesus sees them. Has God stirred your heart this morning through his word? If that's you, can I pray for you? Would you slip your hand up and say, that's me. Oh, I want to see people like Jesus sees them. I want my heart to be stirred by that. Thank you. They put your hands down. Heavenly Father, we do want our hearts stirred by you. We do want to see people as you see them. We want, to, we want to be moved with compassion. For, Lord, we not only want to think about uh, how people are feeling, we not only want to uh, feel the struggle with people, but we want also for them to know that there's one who can relieve that struggle, that there's somebody who can give new life, that there's somebody who can, who can save them from their sin and give them a home in heaven forever. There's somebody who can restore them to right relationship with God. And that, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, dear God, help us to see this world as you see it, because then we will love people like you love them. Can we stand together with our heads bowed and our eyes closed? And as our brother here begins to play the piano, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Would you come tell the Lord that? Would you come let him know at the altar? Would you say, Lord, I just want to see people like you see them. Lord, stir my heart. Help me, Lord, to be, be compassionate like the Savior's compassionate. Lord, I just know if I saw people the way you do, I'd serve you more faithfully. And if you need the Lord as your Savior this morning, Pastor Nolan is standing right here at the front, and he'll have somebody take a Bible and show you how you can be saved, how you can be made right with God in an instant because of what Jesus has done. And as our heads are bowed and eyes are closed and as people are praying, perhaps the Lord would put it on your heart to join with this great endeavor called Bible Baptist Church. Perhaps the Lord would put it on your heart to become a, a member here and get plugged in and to join this great team in reaching people with the gospel, not only in the valley, but around the world. If that's the case, you could slip to the nearest aisle, let Pastor know of your desire. So I believe God wants me to become a part of this place. I believe God wants me to join this place. Father, we pray that you'd continue to work in our hearts and work in this place. Thank you for the work that you've done through the years here at Bible Baptist Church. Thank you again for her faithful pastor. Thank you for faithful people. But thank you especially for the faithfulness of our Savior. Thank you that the gospel still changes lives as it has changed ours. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in proclaiming it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you'll be seated, I just want to give you one last thing this morning. Just one last thing. There's a, a simple three-part formula when it comes to the area of missions. 
And this is what stirred my heart regarding this passage, three-part formula, and it's, it's something that's not new, but here it is. Visualize, agonize, evangelize. You know why we don't evangelize? Because we don't agonize. You know why we don't agonize? Because we just don't see people where they are without Christ. Visualize, agonize, evangelize. Let's say that together. Visualize, agonize, evangelize. Boy, if you don't get anything else out of this morning, get those three things. Visualize. And we'd say, oh, dear God, help me to see people as you see them. And oh, help me, Lord, to agonize over souls, to agonize over my neighbor, to agonize over my, my colleagues, to agonize over my family. And oh, dear God, with that, help me then to seek to evangelize. I want to invite you back tonight. We're going to give you what I believe is just such a simple, simple biblical formula that we can use going out into the mission field where we are. Some people say, well, I don't know how to lead a soul to Christ. Well, while you're learning, you can use tonight's formula from the Word of God. You don't have to wait till you know theology and doctrine and all of that. Tonight, we're going to give you such a simple formula from the Word of God that even a four-year-old could use and has, and four-year-olds have used it. And so I want to invite you back tonight for the six o'clock service for a very simple formula.